Have any of you ever experienced love notes gone wrong? You know, maybe you passed a note in school and got caught by the teacher and he or she read it. Someone said, yeah, that actually happened. I thought that only happened in movies. Um, I've been caught in a loop of love notes gone wrong myself. Uh, I've been on both ends. I remember when I was an eighth grader, um, this this sweet, nice uh, girl came up to me and said, hey, would you read this poem and could you give it a name? And I just was, I read the poem and the first line was Shining Sun Boy. I remember that. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what to call this poem. Um, so I, never, I was able, never able to come up with a name. Then later, she, when she was re- receiving some recognition, some rewards, I found out the name of the poem was Brad. <laughs> now, I don't say that to make fun of her. She was sweet. But for, eight, for an eighth grade boy, this was a little bit too much to handle. Uh, and so while you might think Shining Sun Boy would be a compliment, and it is to an eighth grade boy, it's really embarrassing. And so that didn't quite work. But I've been on the other end of that too. So uh, when, when I was about 21 or so, there was a girl that I was interested in. And um, I've always been kind of a personality that likes to do things kind of big and a little bit goofy. So I saw these postcards in a local coffee shop for this group called the Jukka Brothers. Does anyone remember the Jukka Brothers? Okay, there's a, I've got, I found a picture of them. It was an ad campaign, that's them right there, for MTV. And apparently this is what can happen to you if you don't have access to MTV, if I remember the ad campaign very well. And so I did this thing where I pretended that these four gentlemen were my competition for her affections, right? So she was going away for the summer. She was a student. And so every month or so, I'd send her a note saying why I was better than one of these guys, right? And then the last thing I did, true story, is I hang my head in shame and take a drink to drown my sorrows, is I dressed up like a jukka, took a picture sent it to her and said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Yes. Yeah, it didn't work. It didn't work. It was terrible. I'm, I feel the shame right now. I thought it was super creative. We, we didn't work out. And in the end, I was happy because I, I ended up with Becca, and she probably ended up with someone good for her. But yeah, can, we can flip the screen now off of that. But also, uh, my friend from junior high, myself, I think we're in good company. Um, I recently read a love poem gone wrong from a very famous author, a guy you might have heard of, called William Shakespeare, who once wrote this. My love is as a fever, longing still for that which no longer nurseth the disease, feeding on that which doth preserve the ill, the uncertain sickly appetite to please. My reason, the physician to my love, angry that his prescriptions are not kept, hath left me. And I desperate now approve, desire is death, which physic did accept. Past cure I am. Now reason is past care. And frantic mad with evermore unrest, my thoughts and my discourse as madmen's are at random from the truth vainly expressed. For I have sworn thee fair and thought thee bright, who art as black as hell, 
as dark as night. Ooh. Now, as great as Shakespeare was, I know that the poem here was likely written to be sarcastic on several level. I'm going to give him that credit. But I'm guessing that reading, you are black as hell and dark as night, probably wouldn't have helped move along any romantic relationship that he may have been pursuing. Just a guess. And so following this theme here that I've set up of curious love letters, we're going to look today at a passage of scripture that I'm going to argue actually is a beautiful love letter to us, but it may not read that way at all at first. It may even sound off-putting and even disturbing at some points, but if we take a closer look, I believe that we'll actually learn some really important things about the nature of love and God's love for us. So let me read you our passage for today, and then we'll dive into it a little bit. This is taken from Exodus 20. And God spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, reading this passage of Scripture as a love letter may not seem immediately obvious to you. I'm just guessing. First, Um, You may recognize this. This is the intro to and the first two commandments of the very famous Ten Commandments. Uh, And that's uh, pretty interesting in itself, I think. Most love letters aren't a list of commands. Um, Second, some of the language isn't necessarily what you would expect in a love letter. There's talk of jealousy and punishment. Uh, That type of language doesn't usually get the warm fuzzies going right? But if we look closely, I think we'll see a jealous God fighting to build trust, fighting to perfect, and giving his all to build a close relationship with his people. So I want you to give me a little space here as I bring us back around to why I think this is encouraging and loving. Um, And to get started, I want to start just right off the top by looking at what I think is probably the most uncomfortable or the most controversial aspect of this passage. And that's this line. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So as God speaks, I'm arguing today that he describes himself as a jealous lover. Now this, I think, is a tough idea for most modern audiences, if not all audiences of all time. I think our picture of jealousy isn't a good one. And rightly so. In fact, in the Bible, jealousy is spoken of in negative terms almost exclusively. In Galatians, for example, uh, jealousy is listed as one of the things that keeps people from experiencing the kingdom of God. So jealousy is normally a very bad thing, to put it simply. And here's why. Normal jealousy leads to anger that destroys love. Sort of sticking with this Shakespearean theme, if any of you have ever read or seen the play Othello, spoiler alert, I'm going to run the ending right now. As I'm 
known to do with movies, but here's the thing. This play was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. You had your chance, okay? <laughs> so, no, someone booing me? I'm going to, no. So there's what happens in this play. Uh, the main character, Othello, believes on a very deep level that he's unlovable. And, is, and as so, he's convinced by someone who's actually jealous of him that the love of his life, his wife, Desdemona, is cheating on him. And in a jealous rage, he kills her. And he says or thinks or thinks to the point of, if I can't have her, no one will. Okay? And this is what jealousy does. It produces anger that kills love. It's destructive. Nothing good comes from this kind of jealousy. But in the Bible, there's also this other type of jealousy that's actually called godly jealousy. That's applied to God himself and sometimes to people as well. In the second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul, who's this early church father, who would write letters to the churches that he started, and those letters, a lot of them became Christian scripture, he says this, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one, Jesus Christ, so that I might present you as pure to him. But I'm afraid that your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And if you read the letter and you find out what's going on, you'll see that the people around this young church have been trying to sort of pervert the message of Jesus. And this makes Paul angry. So he's jealous because he sees people being pulled away from Jesus and heading in some destructive directions. And he's angry because he sees people he cares about being pulled away and led down a path to destruction. But it's not about his ego. And it's not about his pride. And in his anger, in his jealousy, he doesn't turn on them. Instead, he cries out to them. He writes a letter to plead with them. You see, godly jealousy is love fighting extinction. So normal jealousy is love gone extinct. So Othello is a good example of that because it's self-centeredness and it and it centers on hurt pride. Godly jealousy stays connected to, the, to rescuing those you love, even if they're rejecting you. And this is the type of jealousy that God is referring to when he says, I'm a jealous God. And we can see that in this passage. And I think we can see that in the, the way that God's love comes through. And here's what I want you to look at. So God's love is a love that fights for real Trust fights for real trust, not control. He says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, this can sound like a selfish kind of jealousy when God says, No other gods, no other idols. It sounds a lot like me, 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 right? And I think when we come to that conclusion, we actually miss what God is jealous for. You've got to remember, God doesn't need an ego boost, right? If there's an all-powerful, omnipotent presence, if there's a God of the universe, the last thing he, she, it would need is you to prop up the ego of God. If you're created by God, God doesn't need you to tell him that he's cool, Right? But this sounds like me, 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 me. And I think when we come to that conclusion, we miss what God is jealous for, what he wants. 
I think, essentially, is a deep relationship of trust with his people that's destroyed by the worship of multiple gods. Now, I think to understand this, it's helpful to understand how religious practice typically worked in the time when this passage or these scriptures was written. So religious practice back in those days was very similar to sort of a political maneuvering between the gods. So I get this thing from this god, and I run over here and I get that from that god, and I get this from this god over here, and I have to sort of keep them all happy. But as a result, I have to sort of compromise in my relationship with them all. But if I keep the plates spinning, maybe I'll be okay, right? And the problem here is that there's never any real trust between the worshiper and the gods. Therefore, there's never any real relationship either. There's no real peace. And I think one of God's points here is trust me. Don't play me politically. Don't come to me for some things, but go to other places for others. And this can sound a little bit like a different world to us. Like, I don't know too many people who have several idols in their home. Um, And most of us here, I don't think, have the experience of sacrificing or praying to multiple gods. But I think if we look at our lives, I think we can see that we cobble together things from different places to try and build a life or an approach to life that will make us happy, right? So we look to a relationship to provide one thing to us. We look to our careers to find something else, another little nugget of meaning. We look to our family or community to provide something else, and we look to God for certain things, but only certain things. And I think God is saying, look, that won't work, because you're kind of doing this political dance. You're trying to please all of these different areas, career, relationships, money, but you're always compromising one to feed the other, and none of them are ever really pleased And you never have the peace you want because you're missing a sense of trust in your existence. And there's a breakdown in your relationship with the universe because there's a breakdown in your relationship with God. And I think the message of the first two commandments is that if you drop the political game and put your first trust in God, that the other things will be able to fall in line because you won't be looking to them to fulfill you, but rather trusting God for grace in all of those areas. Well, that is a hard thing to do because we doubt whether God is really loving and trustworthy. And even if we've experienced good things in a relationship with him, it's scary to let go of other ways that we have kept the politics of our life going. You know, they may not always have been working that well, but it's all we know. So when we hear a command, we think, wow, That's controlling. This is what I've been doing, and it's gotten me at least this far, even if this far might be a little empty or in some sense painful, but it's gotten me here. And I I think another thing we miss is we don't realize that uh, this type of jealous love fights for real perfection. That's the way I'm putting it. And what this means is that a godly jealous love won't let the object of its love continue to do themselves harm. It fights for perfection. Verse 2 says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And I think it's like God is prefacing these Ten Commandments with a reminder here. Look, remember, I'm on your side. 
I brought you out of Egypt. I don't want to enslave you. I'm trying to set you free. I'm about to give you some commandments for living, but they aren't meant to control you. They're meant to lead you into life, and they're meant to reshape your perception of the world and me and life because all you've ever known is slavery. You don't know any better. You don't know any different. You just don't know what will make you happy. And these commandments will help you get there. That's what I think is happening here. God is giving commandments to a people who've never known anything but being controlled, never known anything but slavery, don't know from experience what it would take to actually live a happy life. And he is saying, look, here are some things that will help you get there, that will help renew your perceptions, that will get you headed in the right direction. A godly love won't let you stay stuck in broken lifestyles. Godly jealous love pushes us beyond that. That, I think, is the point of these commands. God will not let imperfection or brokenness or however you want to phrase it go unchallenged. I read this clip. Read this clip? Does that work? I read this part section. Uh, it was, I read this thing. I don't know. Written by C.S. Lewis. And he said this, when we fall in love, do we cease to care whether our lover is clean or dirty, fair or foul? Do we not rather than first begin to care? Does any person regard it as a sign of love that a lover neither knows nor cares how one is looking? Love may indeed love the beloved when her beauty is lost, but not because it's lost. Love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease to will their removal. Love is more sensitive than hatred itself to every blemish in the beloved. Of all powers, the lover forgives most, but she condones least. She is pleased with a little, but demands all. You catch what he's saying there? A real love doesn't like to see what it loves suffer live broken patterns, continue in a way that doesn't work. Second, the broken politics in our lives keep us from understanding what will actually bring us happiness. We only know one way, what we've always done. And the commands are meant to show us another way, ways that can seem counterintuitive, but are for our best. Now, a godly, jealous love won't let us continue to hurt ourselves, but will point out another way that is to our benefit, even if it's different from what we would expect. And finally, if there be any confusion about the true difference between normal jealousy and what we're seeing here, God describing himself as jealous, in case there's a concern that really godly jealousy is just normal jealousy, cleverly wrapped up in a spiritual double standard that hides the fact that God is really an egomaniac, with his ends and minds, no matter what might be in our best interests, there's this. Godly jealousy will sacrifice so that others may experience both. And by both, I'm referring to the trust and perfection. See, godly jealousy keeps loving. 
love that will not stand to watch its beloved waste away or destroy him or herself, but instead will act, even to its own detriment. Now, this would have been hard for the original audience of this passage to understand. I think, in many ways, this just would have been an idea to sort of extrapolate from God's goodness in general. But we actually have a lens that we can view this through that's an advantage to us that the original hearers of this wouldn't have. We have Jesus. Always Jesus. Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, I think, and maybe this is where we jump to first, that certainly means that Jesus was saying that he would obey the law, but fulfilling is not about obeying. (laughs) Fulfilling the law means that the law is actually pointing to him and that he would show what the law was really all about and therefore fulfill it. So as human beings, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that we don't really like commandments. Anybody with me on that one? Even from a loving God, they seem controlling, so we push back. And that is what the Israelite people did when they received these commands. And after a while, they didn't seem like a love letter. They seemed arbitrary and one among many political options for spiritual and social health. So they pushed away. And when they did, God did what he promised in this passage, and he punished them. That's fun, right? But we need to put this in context and understand what the punishment was. So speaking to a whole nation, not even necessarily individuals, and the message is, if you turn away from me, I'll let you. For three generations even, before I call you back and come to your rescue. And the promise from God is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And if they don't want to be his people, he would oblige And the punishment was the loss of that sort of special relationship for a time before it was restored. And the goal was not to hurt the Israelites, but to help them remember and realize how good the relationship was with him. So he's not going to stalk them. If they don't want a relationship, he's not going to turn into a creepster. That's not what jealous, godly love is. I don't think this. Well, the famous line from a million songs, if you love someone, let, let them go, set them free. He's like, all right. But he still won't forget either. And restoration and rescue was still the aim for God. So this happened if you read the scriptures again and again and again. And eventually, even the absence of God's presence wasn't enough for the Israelites or humanity to put their trust in him. So God did what godly jealousy requires. You see, when worldly jealousy is pushed, it kills love. When godly jealousy is pushed, it dies for love. And this is how Jesus fulfilled the law. There would be no more generations of separation in relationship. God himself would sacrifice himself to make grace and continued relationship available in a way that had never been available before. And so God came as a man in Jesus and sacrificed himself. That's what the cross is all about. Taking that separation from God on his own back so that we would not have to experience it ourselves. And the result, and this is the kicker, and this is where what love is desiring, the result is intimacy. 
The Ten Commandments, lots of passages like them, were meant to be prescriptions for how humanity could have a deep, connected, intimate relationship of love experienced with God. God's aim was to point us to him through the law. And his desire is to be, as he describes it here, your God. That's a personal, intimate, deep understanding and experience of God. And I think Jesus shows us what this life is that the law points to can be. And I think this is what the entire passage and the Ten Commandments as a whole points to. When seen in this light, the commandments, I think, are more overtures of how to be in, build, and maintain a love relationship with God, built on a foundation of loving the God who first loved us and demonstrated it through the cross. And when this happens, when you experience this type of thing, (laughs) it's funny what the results are. You know, when you're in love, many of you have probably experienced this, when you trust and adore the object of your love, on a certain level, the essence of love is this, your wish is my command. And I think it's with this understanding that the Ten Commandments can actually be read as a love letter. So what can we do? Well, I think the encouragement of this series, encouragement first with this talk, is an encouragement to stop hedging our bets. One of the messages of the cross is that God, that Jesus is trustworthy, that you can trust him. The politics can end. Follow the commands, not as an obligation, but as an opportunity to build trust and know God better. Even that song we sing at the beginning of the day, I want to know you, God. I'm leaving off my religion. I'm laying down. I want to know you. I think that gets to the heart of some of what we're seeing in this passage today. You know, we all have different things that we negotiate with to bring us happiness that actually can cut God out. What's yours? And if you're not sure, maybe a way to find it is to say this, what is an area of your life where you don't feel peace? Well, sometimes there are just seasons where things are crazy and we don't feel peace. But if there's something that's just been there for years and years and years, what do you trust in that area of your life Maybe it's not working. And is there a practical way you could refocus? Turn that trust towards Jesus somehow. What would that look like? And this could be your chance to build your relationship with God, to experience more of him, to know him more, and see a healthy change, and understand greater the jealous love that doesn't want to control you, but actually sacrifice for you. Let's pray. God, I just pray that somehow, I pray this service could be part of it, I pray this sermon, this prayer could be part of it. Somehow, we could see and understand your love for us Uh, in a new way 
that make a difference. And I pray that it would inspire and build in us uh, trust. Uh, Even a type of trust that would push us out of our comfort zones and lead us to different ways of living and different ways of seeing the world and interacting with people. Something that's better than what we've always known. And we just say, together as a community, if all we've ever known is all there is, that is a depressing perspective. But our hope is that we actually aren't seeing some things. That there's more going on around us and that we can grow and transform and connect to those things. And we welcome that. Amen.